I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning. If you have them with you, either your Bible or on the phone to the first chapter of the New Testament book of Acts, as we are beginning a brand new sermon series that is called, What an Apostle Acts Like. Did you hear that? You see what I did? Still play on words, right? So we're going to be in the book of Acts for quite a while. Actually, throughout the remainder of the year, all except for our Christmas sermon series, and we very well may be back into the book of Acts at the beginning of next year. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, and it actually is like the second half of the New Testament. The New Testament starts out with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we go into the book of Acts, and we start seeing what happens as the church is developed after Christ has left as he has gone back into heaven. And so that's what we are really going to be studying in this particular sermon series. We're going to be learning a lot about the beginning of the Christian church. I wonder if you... Maybe you have a legal name. You have a name that, that only your mom or dad call you, right? Or, or only shows up on government forms because you have a middle name that you don't want to tell anyone, right? It's your, your legal name. Well, the, the book of Acts is kind of like that. The book, the title, the official title is the Acts of the Apostles. It's a verb, Okay? The Acts, it's what the apostles did. That's what we're going to be studying. This, this term, though, that I've already mentioned here this morning, we're going to dive into because it's really important. In previous messages here at our church, we've mainly been talking about the 12 disciples. Now we're going to be talking a lot about the 12 apostles. So the question is, what's the difference? Well, we find this at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts starts, as I mentioned, when Jesus has left our planet for, for good, and the 12 disciples who were following him when he was on earth during his three years of ministry, these men are called disciples. A disciple, by definition, is somebody who is a student. It is somebody who is learning. So who are the apostles? Well, honestly, they're the same guys. In the book of Acts, we change their name from disciples to apostles because their mission has changed. First, they were students. They were learning. They were following. They were, they were taking in, absorbing everything that Jesus was teaching them. Now, they are apostles. An apostle means to be, is somebody who is sent out. Their mission has changed. At the end of every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read what's called Jesus gives the disciples what is called the Great Commission. It is their job now to go into all of the world and to spread the Gospel, and now they are given a chore to go out. They are now apostles with a new mission. The book of Acts was written by a gentleman by the name of Luke. Luke is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay, he wrote Luke. Luke was a historian. Luke was a doctor. 
He was a writer. He was almost like somewhat of a journalist today. He's going to turn over every stone in his investigation so that he could write a really good story. And I want you to see how Luke starts out the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse number 1. It'll be up here on the screen. Luke writes this. He says, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and teach, verse number 2, until the day that he was taken up into heaven... After giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So, verse number one, Luke references his first book, which we know as the book of Luke. I don't know if you have a favorite movie that maybe have had a sequel, and you say the sequel was just as good as the original. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Here, it happened. The book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. It comes right after that. Now, I want you to see how Luke started out the book of Luke. So we're going back to the original, to his first writing. Luke writes this in Luke chapter 1. He says this in verse number 3. He says, Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So he's writing to the same guy. Luke is creating an account in the book of Luke of what Jesus did. He ends that book right after the crucifixion, and then the sequel, the book of Acts, starts out right as Jesus is going back up into heaven, and then he's going to continue to write about the life of the church. So Luke is investigating. Luke, he's an author. He's a doctor. Details are really important to every doctor, right? I mean, you look at the chart, you might as well know exactly what that chart means. It's very important. Luke says he is putting together a very precise version He isn't taking anything for granted. He isn't making anything up. He's interviewed people. He's put together a very accurate account of what happened during the time that Christ was on the earth. But in the first two sentences, the first two verses of Acts, we see that Luke said, he said, I've told you everything that Jesus has done. Now I'm going to tell you what what the church is going to do But we're going to start at the day that Jesus was taken up to heaven after watching this, giving instructions to his apostles, notice not disciples, apostles, through the Holy Spirit. We're going to stop right here for a minute, and we're going to start writing some stuff stuff down and learning about this. Point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us in-house or online for the very first time, you will find on the backside of your bulletin or some fill-in-the-blanks. I'm going to give you those. They're going to be up here on the screen. Point number one in your notes this morning is this. The Holy Spirit is God living in you. Let's dive into that a little bit. Let's get specific about the Holy Spirit. This is really, really important. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And where does the Holy Spirit live? Let's answer some of these questions. Let's start out with... Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not God's Spirit. Stay with me. I'm going to make some of this make sense, okay? When we refer to God, we're referring to God in three persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. 
the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, all separate, but all God. God in three persons. So who is the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit is first spirit. He is a helper. He is a messenger. He is an advocate for us. In the Trinity, the Holy Spirit has a very specific responsibility, very specific qualities that are different from God the Father and are different from God the Son. And I want you to know this because this is so important because the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never points to himself, always points everything to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why that's important in a minute. What is referred to as the first part of the Trinity, the first part of the Godhead, is what we refer to as God the Father. And I'm going to refer to members of the Trinity this morning and try and help compartmentalize these in our, in our, in our mind. I'm going to refer to them as to where they live right now. God the Father resides in heaven. God the Father has always been Jesus has always been. The Holy Spirit has always been. But God the Father resides in heaven. The second member of the Trinity is God the Son, Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus... Jesus, God, who came to earth, died for our sins was the atonement for our sins because, because we, couldn't, we couldn't save ourselves. There needed to be a sacrifice. This is God the Son. But God the Son, Jesus, was in heaven before he was on earth with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit. He was there before the earth was formed. So, yes, Jesus was in heaven. He humbled himself. He came. He was born on earth from a virgin, went to the cross, and he died. While Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples, he told his students, he said that God the Father would be sending God the Holy Spirit to them. Watch this. I'm in John chapter 14. I'm in verse number, I'm in verse number 26. Jesus says this, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit draws us closer to Jesus. The Holy Spirit did not die for us. The Holy Spirit was not born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit did not spend three years with 12 men training them for ministry. That was Jesus, God the Son. That was his job. That was his responsibility. Jesus came, sacrificed his human life, was God in the flesh, sacrificed for us. Being that Jesus is indeed God, this is God dying for us. That's a much greater sacrifice that you and I can, can create on our own. The Holy Spirit, watch this, this is really important. The Holy Spirit is God who is always with you. When we say that God lives in my heart, we're specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an advocate, is a helper 
And I want you to see what Paul writes in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 8, verse number 26. Paul writes this. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as, as, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit is there for us. So what about the Holy Spirit? What does that have to do with us? If you are a Christian... The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit is given to you when you come to Christ in salvation, not before. No, when you accept Christ into your heart, you have accepted God to lead your life, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within you. This is what Peter says. Luke records this in the book of Acts, but this is Peter preaching. I'm in Acts chapter 2, verse number 38. Peter is telling an entire crowd, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. Peter says, each of you must repent for your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see how we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in this. They're all coming together here. It is so important to know and understand the truth of the Trinity because Jesus taught his disciples about this concept and he taught them this truth and explained to them exactly how it's going to work. I want to read you one more verse in this context. I'm in John chapter 14. It'll be up here on the screen. Verse number 15 says, Christ says this, talking to his disciples, remember learners at this time, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask God the Son, I will ask the Father, God the Father, and he will give you another helper, this is God the Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see that? The Holy Spirit is with you and in you. That's who's moving into your heart. When you become a Christian, this is the Holy Spirit. This is God living in you. But you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you if you don't know God. He'll send the Holy Spirit to live in you. When I was 15 years old, 15 and a half, probably more precisely, was in high school, and back then in high school, they still had this class called driver's education, and you got this little book. It was about this size here, and you just flip through these pages, and you would read these 26 pages that would teach you what you needed to know to go to the EMV and pass the test for, the, uh, for your driver's permit. And so you would read through this book, and you would learn things about a car and about driving, and you would learn the signs that would be out there on the road, like what is a, a school zone sign. You would say, this one, this sign means to yield to oncoming traffic, and this sign means to, oh, it's the ever-popular stop sign. We kind of knew what that one was before we opened the book, but there's others that teach you these are merge onto the freeway signs, and this here teaches you what a dotted yellow line or a double yellow line means and what the dots mean in the middle of the road. These were so important to learn because if you didn't know this detailed information, you might not be able to navigate properly through the details of the city streets or the freeways. That's kind of what the Trinity is like in understanding this, is that if we don't really know who it is we're praying to, if we don't really know who it is that's in our heart, we can kind of get mixed up 
All the members of the Trinity are in different places, have different responsibilities, but they all are God. Some people in some churches spend a lot of effort worshiping the Holy Spirit. And I'll be honest with you, that is a misplacement of our worship. The Holy Spirit never, ever asked for worship. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. Jesus is the one who we worship. There are churches who consider themselves spirit-filled churches. And it's okay to be spirit-filled, but if you are spirit-filled and you are Jesus-empty, you have missed the mark. Jesus is where we give our worship. He is the one who we are in debt to for being our sacrifice. So, God the Father lives in heaven, always has, lives in heaven now. God the Holy Spirit lives, lives within us, lives in your heart as a believer. What about Jesus? What about God the Son? Jesus before he was born from Mary, lived in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus always was. There is no time when any member of the Godhead was born. They were always there. But Jesus humbled himself. He came to earth as a man. He was born of a virgin, lived 33 years on earth, was our sacrifice, died on the cross, was seen by disciples, gave them instructions, and he went back up into heaven. Let's pick up the action. We are in Mark chapter 16, verse number 19. It says this, When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, his disciples, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. This is God the Father's right hand. Jesus now lives in heaven, and he has taken a place of honor next to God the Father's right hand. That doesn't make him any lesser than God the Father. He never was. But God the Holy Spirit lives in you. He is a helper. He is an advocate. He is a messenger. He is a gift to you as a believer from God the Father. You see, there's different responsibilities for each member of the Trinity. There's different places. There's different responsibilities in different realms. Who is there to help you pray when you don't know what to pray? That's the Holy Spirit. Who is there to help you read and understand God's Word when you can't read and understand God's Word? That's the Holy Spirit. Who is the advocate and the, and the helper who Christ provided and promised that God the Father would send specifically to live inside your heart as a believer? That is the Holy Spirit. Now, come back with me. Let's see what Luke says as he continues his letter in the beginning of the book of Acts. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verse number 3. Luke writes this. During the 40 days after he suffered, this is Jesus, God the Son, after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John was baptized, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, okay? Let's go back to our Easter story. We know that Jesus was crucified on Friday. He went into the grave on Friday. 
He rose and was seen on Sunday. He was back on earth starting that, that Sunday for 40 days. And he had some final instructions for his students before he sent them to work, and he changed their names from disciples to apostles before he changed their mission. Before Jesus could give them his final instructions, though, he needed to make himself known. They, the last time they saw him, his corpse was lifeless. Now he needed to instruct them and change their mission. Before he can give them these final instructions, he needed to prove to them that he was alive. This is point number two in your notes this morning, and this is so important. There is significant proof that Jesus rose from the dead. There is significant proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Our entire Christian faith is built on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death, and he took your place in death for your sins. And there are some people who don't want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because they've never seen anyone who had rose from the dead. But it's pretty evident that it actually happened. Let me tell you something. Every single one of the disciples, remember students at the time, then turning into apostles. So now every single one of the apostles was killed for their faith and their belief that Jesus actually rose from the dead. All of their, all of their deaths were very traumatic. Now, it might make sense that somebody that you know is willing to go to the sword, is willing to go into death to stand up for the truth. Some people, and many people have, this is the truth, I am willing to die for it. But how likely it is, or how likely is it that 12 people, 12 apostles are willing to die for an absolute lie? Probably not very likely. You and I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Not many people would go to their graves holding on to something convincing others of an absolute lie. They know it's a lie, but they're willing to die for it. And much more unlikely is that 12 men will go to their death for a lie, and those 12 men actually happen to be men who walked literally with Jesus on earth. How likely is it that all 12 men would go to their death for a lie? Not very likely. I want you to see some of the proofs that Luke is talking about. I'm in John chapter 20, verse number 19. John writes this, that Sunday evening, this is Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead on this Sunday. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus is standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Here's a proof. This is one of the first proofs of when Jesus made himself known to the disciples. It's the evening of Easter Sunday. Eleven men saw him. Women had already seen them. Seen them. I, I say eleven because we know that Judas had left the group and he had committed suicide. So eleven are now twelve. And we're going to talk about that next week as well. So we have the disciples who have spent three years with them in a, uh, with him in a room, and they see him now. There's women who have already seen him at this point, and we're less than 24 hours since he has risen and made himself known. 
Tell you, in every court case, I don't know if you've ever been a juror before. Raise your hand. Have you, has anyone been on jury duty? Anyone had jury duty before? I love jury duty. I'll be honest with you. Kelly just got a jury notice in the, in the mail the other day, and I so wish my name was on it. And it's not. She's like, oh, I want it. Just like most people, it's like, oh, how can I get out of this? I'm like, I want on. I want on the jury. Give it to me. Just put my name on there. But if you've ever been in a jury, or maybe you've watched a show on television that is like a court TV thing, you know what happens is the, 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 the persecution, the, um, they bring in some witnesses, and they go up and they tell their story, and the defense brings up witnesses, and they go up and they tell their story, and the jury's job is to listen to all of the evidence and decide who is telling the truth and what the truth is. If you were around in the mid-90s, you'll remember the every ever popular everyone in america was glued to their television watching the oj simpson trial you remember that 41 days this trial was on and there were 101 witnesses that were called to the stand during this trial and at the end of this 41 days all the evidence was given to the jury to make a decision on what was truth that's a long time, and that's a lot of witnesses, 101 witnesses over 41 days. But I want you to see what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Watch this. Paul writes this. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for your sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and then raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said, Watch this, verse number five. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12, and after that was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of who are, are still alive, although some have died. And then he was seen by James and later, later by all the apostles. What Paul is saying is more than 500 people saw Jesus alive, and they had they had just seen him and his lifeless body on a cross a few days before that. They had seen him being put into a tomb. People in this territory of the world, it was pretty common to see lifeless corpses on crosses outside of town. That's how the Romans killed people. It was the capital punishment. And if Roman soldiers grabbed you, they could pin you down, they would nail people to a cross. The hills would be covered in crosses, just full of people that the Romans were killing. It was not uncommon for a family to be walking home from outside Jerusalem or many cities and just see lifeless bodies up on crosses. And Paul is saying everyone here is familiar with a dead man. They know what that is like. But never has there been 500 people who have seen a man who was previously walking, who was previously talking, and now they see him eating and teaching, and he was just dead on a cross a few days ago. 500 people. So unlike any jury trial that you're ever going to watch on television, there are 500 witnesses that say that Jesus was alive. And all throughout the Bible and all throughout historical literature, we have zero witnesses. Watch this again. Zero witnesses that say that they still see Jesus in the grave. Zero that write about a grave that has a rotting corpse two weeks later, a month later, zero. We have 500 witnesses all saying the same thing. Why is that? 
Because it's true. Because that's what they know. That's what they have seen. They all are saying the exact same thing, and nobody is saying anything opposite of that truth. Luke continues with his instructions in the second book. I'm in Acts chapter 1, his second book in Acts. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verse number 6. Luke writes this. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him. Okay, so this is that. Jesus has come back. He's found his disciples. He's made himself known to them. And watch what they say to Jesus. They keep asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And Jesus replied, he says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. See, Jesus came back from the grave, he found his disciples, and he's ready to give them instructions, and he's ready to change their title from disciples to apostles, from learners to doers, from students to graduates who are now ready to go out into the world. But the disciples keep asking this nagging question that they've already asked him before, and Jesus is, uh, he's, he's saying, uh, you guys don't get it. They keep asking about the Roman government, and are you going to give us back our, our nation of Israel and, and let us all be a nation again? <sighs> this is so frustrating to Jesus. Write this down. This is point number three in your notes this morning. Even the most mature followers of Jesus are not on the same page as Jesus. Even the most mature followers of Jesus are not on the same page as Jesus. I'm not saying that all mature followers are off base, but at this moment in time, the most mature followers in Jesus, they didn't get it. These guys had been living with Jesus for three years. They had not had a home. They had traveled. They had lived out in the wilderness, moving from town to town to town. Jesus is performing miracles. He is teaching people about the kingdom of God. And you would say, these are the most mature Christians that exist. The, a Christian is a Christ follower. These are the most mature Christians. They've been with them for three years. But they still didn't get it. They were witnesses to his miracles. They were witnesses to the arrest of Jesus. They were witnesses when they saw the Roman soldiers slam nails through his hands. They were witnesses of his lifeless corpse hanging on a cross. They saw his body being put into a grave. They were witnesses when they saw his resurrected body, but they still didn't get it. These guys had in their mind a focus uh, on, a, on a kingdom of themselves, not the kingdom of God. Their mind was set on earthly things, not heavenly things. The disciples wondered if Jesus was now back. Are, are you back to form this small kingdom of Israel and to give us back our leadership? And Jesus tells them, you know, whatever is going to happen, it's above your pay grade. It really is. And that's not the job that I'm giving you. You're not here to be like the rulers. You're not here to rule with me in the kingdom of Israel. I'm not going to give you all the details. That's not my business. He says, you let me deal with the big stuff. Rather, he says, that's not your business to know all the details about what's going to happen. That's my job. I'm going to give you a job. 
He says, man, you guys have been with me for three years and you're not even asking the right questions. Jesus has to be thinking, you are the most mature Christians that are on the face of the earth right now and you are so far off base. There is nobody on earth at this time that knows more about Jesus than this guy, than these guys. But they still don't get it. Sometimes I wonder if you and I are asking Jesus the wrong questions as well. I wonder sometimes if we're asking him, Jesus, when are you going to make my life better? And if Jesus is saying, when are you going to make somebody else's life better? I wonder if we're asking Jesus, when is it my turn to be first? And I wonder if Jesus is saying, when are you going to put somebody else's life first? I wonder if we're asking Jesus things like, when am I ever going to get out of this place? And if Jesus is saying, don't you realize I put you in that place? You are there on purpose. You are there for a reason. Stop questioning me and do your job. That's why Jesus is somewhat frustrated at the guys now. He's like, you guys still don't get it. We're going to finish up our opening remarks in, that Luke writes, and as he's making his transition book here, the book of Acts. I'm in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Luke writes this. Jesus is telling them. He's telling his guys now. He's already said, don't worry about the nation of Israel. That's not, uh, that's above your pay grade. That, uh, you're not going to know the time when that's going to happen. Verse number eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. That's what we call the Great Commission there, Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. This is the fifth time we see this in the first five books of the Bible. Jesus says this, number, verse number 9, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. They could no longer see him as they strained to see him rising into heaven too White-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing there staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven the same way that you saw him go. Here's the fourth point in your notes this morning. Write this down. This is so important. Jesus always leaves a few instructions, but he never leaves all the answers. He always leaves a few instructions, but he never leaves all the answers. Jesus didn't give his, formal his former disciples, now apostles, he didn't give them all of the instructions. He gave them a few, not all of them. He told them to go and tell other people about me, tell them about the kingdom of God, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell them how to do it. He didn't tell them what they were going to encounter when they got out on the road. He didn't tell them exactly where to go and how to get there. He didn't draw them a map because that wasn't his job. That's actually the responsibility of the Holy Spirit now leaving, living inside them because the Holy Spirit is your guide. Finally, when I was a kid... Every day when 
I got up and we were getting ready for school, there was a pad of paper out at the edge of the counter before we got to the door. And my brother and I would read this every day. My mom would write a note before she left for work and we would have to read that note. That note was our chore list. And on this chore list might be things like, unload the dishwasher. Did your mom ever leave you a chore list? Anyone remember chore lists? Yeah? We've got moms who write chore lists now, right? You're gonna recognize this. Mom would say, vacuum the living room. She would say things like, uh, uh, put up your clothes, take the dog for a walk, pick up the baby's toys. But what she didn't do is tell us how to vacuum. She expected us to know how to turn on the vacuum by now. She expected us to know exactly where to put the baby's toys. That was built into this chore list, was an understanding of how to do the chores. But there was one thing that my mother never, ever, ever, ever put on the chore list. This was so important. She never put on when she was going to be home. You know why? Because she knew that if she said, I'm going to be home at 3.30, that we would start doing chores about 3.15. Some of you are nodding your head. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? When we make a chore list for our kids, we don't put on the time that we're going to be home because we know our kids are going to do the same thing. See, Jesus did the same thing. He did not put on his chore list for us the time that he was going to come back. For the same exact reason, because he knew that if he did, some of us would be waiting till the last minute to start doing our chores. I wonder if there are some who are putting off doing their work that God has given us just because we're waiting. We're waiting. Family, I'll tell you what, Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we know what our job is. We know what is on our chore list. Let me ask you something. Are you putting off the work that Jesus has left for us? Are you putting that off a little bit longer? There's a reason why we're studying a book called Acts of the Apostles. It's because every one of you Every Christian, every believer is an apostle. Yes, we're still learning, but you have the responsibility to go, to do. You have been sent. You have a job. You have a chore. You have a responsibility. Are you waiting? Are you procrastinating? Thinking that you're going to get it done before mom gets home from work? You don't know. We don't know when Christ is coming back. He didn't give us a time on purpose because he doesn't want us waiting till the last minute to do our job. Amen? We're not given permission to sit on our hands until we think the time is right. If you're, if you're trying to guess when Jesus is coming back before you start doing your job, you're off base. Paul writes this to the church in Thessalonica. I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the last thing we're going to read this morning. Paul writes this, Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you about that. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Jesus isn't telling you when he's going to be home. He's not telling you when to start doing your chores so you don't get caught with the living room not been vacuumed and your clothes still all over the place. Saying, I'm not telling you when I'm coming back. Do 
your job now so that you are prepared for when I do get home, for when I do come. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to pay for your sins because you can't do it by yourself. And then God the Father sent a helper to live through you in your Christian walk. Every single day, that's the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's God in you. All of this is a gift for you. It's a gift for the reason of helping you do your job. Nobody was given the job of waiting around. Nobody was given the job of kicking back. Nobody was given the job of holding up a shovel. Nobody was given a job of watching the clock. Every Christian now has a name change from a disciple to an apostle, from a learner to a goer to a doer. From the moment you came to Christ, you are now, you can continue to learn, but your job is to go. This morning, if you haven't realized how important you are, if you haven't realized your mission, I want to pray with you. This morning, if you haven't realized the depth of the sacrifice that Christ made for you, I want to pray with you. In just a moment, I'm going to be over here on your left, and Jerry's going to be over here on your right. And we would, we're here to pray for you if you've never accepted Christ into your heart. If you have never accepted Christ and recognized him as your personal Lord and Savior, if you haven't been given the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives within you, I want to pray with you this morning. Don't leave here today not knowing your importance and your job. We all have a job. We all have a responsibility. You've heard me say this before here. We are not a somebody else church. There's no somebody else here at this church that is going to do the job that God has given you to do. We all have been given gifts to use inside the church, but to use outside the church as well. We all have a job. We are all turning from learners to apostles. As a church together, we're going to watch what happens when a brand new church, the very first Christian church was formed, what it took to go from apostles who would sit 